Well, welcome to Raider Church. My name's Clayton Walker. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, man, I'm sad today because uh, I know we've got two Raider churches left in this spring semester. And that's sad to me. It made me think this morning, I was dropping off my daughter at school and uh, she had this journal or this kind of notebook thing and she was drawing in it with a colored pencil and and uh, I was getting her out of the car, I was gonna take her in. And I said, okay, you know, Nixie, we gotta, you know, put up the uh, the, the notebook, you know, you can put the pencil in there and stuff it in the pocket in the seat and and uh, then and we're gonna go inside. And, and, and she started crying and she's like, no. And I said, no, you're going into school. Like you can't take this into school with you. And she looked at me and she goes. And she started, her face started shaking and vibrating. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, you know what's happening here. And I almost started to laugh. And then I saw some tears. And then I thought in that moment, I can't laugh. I can't laugh at this. This is being bad. It's a bad thing. Like I'm new to this whole girl thing, like daughter's thing, but I know in this moment, like I I can't laugh. And and so I'm seeing her face just kind of scrunch up and she's got tears in her eyes. I'm like, okay, um, let's put it in your backpack and then you can take it to school. And, and, and she was like, no, you know, I'm going to take it in. And, and her, she continued to have this shaking on her face and, and these tears are, I'm like, Okay, well then let's just take it in. You know, we'll take it to school. How about that? You know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. What do I know? You know, uh, so uh, you know, I got here tonight and realizing that we've got two weeks left, and I feel like my face is scrunching up and my tears are coming to my eyes. I'm like, no, no, because I know I'm going to go through this whole summer like of several months with no Raider Church, and that's that's really sad to me. And I, I hope it's sad for you. And if you're not graduating, I hope you'll be back with us uh, next fall. Man, God's done some awesome things here over this semester. And I believe he's not done yet. And he's going to continue to work and move on this campus through Raider Church. I just want to share, though, real quick with you, one of my hugest, like my biggest pet peeves. Okay, it's getting like on my nerves, like really bad. And it even is like right now, like today, because my one of my biggest pet peeves is my kids losing their shoes or their hats. Okay. So let me tell you how this kind of works, okay, in my family. So we've got baseball games this past weekend, and of course, it just happens right when we're trying to leave. Coben, we're, we're, you know, let's get your uniform on, you know, get your stuff, okay, get your cleats on, you know, whatever. Coben, where's your hat? I don't know. Well, did you go look for it? No. Well, we'll go look for your hat. So he goes and looks for his hat, he comes back. Uh, he, I can't find it. Well, did you check your closet? Yeah, I checked there. Did you check the player? Yeah, I checked the player. Did you check mom's car? Yeah, I checked there. Did you check dad's car? No, I didn't do that. So he goes and looks in dad's car, comes back. I can't find it. <sighs> right when we're trying to leave. So I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to go look for it. So the first place I go is I go to his closet. And what do I see? His hat. It's right there on the ground. I'm like, how could you not see the, the hat, Coben? It was right there. Like, you didn't really look, did you? I mean, you just, you kind of went in there and, you know, you went to the next thing and you went to the next. You didn't really look. Okay. So then yesterday... We have his practice, he comes home and, and takes his shoes off. And, and so we know like his shoes, they're, they're right there. Darby's kind of gotten it all ready for him for the next day for school. And sure enough, we come in the next morning and one of his shoes is gone. We're like, where did the shoe go, Coben? Like, uh, what, 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 what's, happened? And what's happening here? He's seven and, and he's like, dad, I don't know where my shoe went. And so we're like, did you check your closet? And, uh, yeah, yeah, I checked the closet. Uh, did you check this? You know, no. It is. So then we're all looking around the house. Like now I've got the whole family, like Darby and myself and, and Levi and Nixon. and Co- We're like, we're all searching for this tennis shoe. And sure enough, we couldn't find it anywhere. Like we don't know what happened to this 
tennis shoe. We know he was wearing it when we got home, but now we can't find it. It's like it just, it just up and left, it vanished. We cannot find this shoe. And so we've been looking for it. Even when they got home today, we've been looking for the shoe. We can't figure out what happened to this stinking new balance tennis shoe. Like it's gone, it's just, it's vanished. The search would be over though, if we found the shoe. And I was thinking today, in the midst of looking for the shoe. You know, Jesus' disciples kept claiming that the grave was empty, that Jesus was gone. And all the Jewish and Roman authorities had to do was to present the body and say, hey, look, here, here, here's the body. Here it is. Search over. Christianity done. Forget the disciples, they're, they're, they're liars. Here's the body, it's right here. Grave's not empty, it's right here. I mean, it wasn't like the Jewish and the Romans were like, we misplaced Jesus. Like, we could have sworn he, we put him right here. Dad, he's right here. Like, we put him right here. Like, I promise you, he's right there. We can't find him. I mean, where is he? All they had to do was to present the body. And you know, I told you over the last couple of weeks, when I got into college, I really began to question what I believe in. Did, is what I believe really true or is it just something I've been told my whole life? Is it just something my, my parents like told me growing up, kind of like Santa Claus or, or the Easter Bunny or whatever. Is this really true? Or is this just what I've been told? Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Like, do I really believe in resurrections? Do I really believe that someone was dead and they came back to life? Like, do I believe that really happened? And so in this series, we've, been just, we've just been examining the evidence. Do we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What evidence is there to show that that happened, that that's true, that would point in that direction? And so we've been examining that evidence. Now, here's what I found when I began to study this. And if you're here tonight and you've got questions or doubts about Jesus, maybe you've got friends, you've got questions or doubts about Jesus, listen, you're in the right place. Because this is what we've been talking about. I've been trying to answer some of those questions. Maybe if you've had doubts about Jesus, is this, is this really true or not? Maybe you've been skeptical. But in series, we've been looking at the evidence. And, and here's what I found when I began to study this for myself, that the Bible actually says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is useless. We're wasting our time here. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we've, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, he said, listen, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then, then, then we're wasting our time here. Our, our preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. Like, there is no reason for you to ever come back to church if Christ has not been raised. You probably have never been told that by a pastor before. Like, don't come back to, if you don't believe Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then don't come back to church because our time here is useless. The question is, is, did he really rise from the dead? Because if he did, that changes everything. You see, there's only three possibilities with Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He didn't give us any other options. He wasn't just a good teacher that had some good things to say. No, you can't really say that about Jesus. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's a liar in that he knew he wasn't the son of God, but he was telling people anyways. He's a lunatic in that maybe he really did believe it. Like he really did believe he was the son of God, but he was just crazy. He was out of his mind. He, he was insane. Like I've met some people like that. Like I've talked to some people like who really believe they're the son of God. Like I, I'm not joking. Like I, I was baptizing a guy one time and I said, have you committed your life to Christ? And he said, I am Christ. I was like, oh, why don't you just get up out of this tank then? How about that? You know, 
you're not, you're not the Messiah. Like you're not Jesus. Okay. He was trying to convince me that he was the son of God. I was like, no, you, you, you really, I give you credit. You really believe it. Like that's good, but you're not him. He's like, I am him. Okay. So he was either a liar. He was a lunatic and that he really believed it, but he wasn't, it wasn't true or he's Lord. Because if he rose from the dead, then he is the son of God. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven except through me. If he rose from the dead, that's true. And he's the only way to heaven. He is Lord. He is God. And there is no other. There is no other way. If he did do what he said he did and what he claimed and what the disciples claimed. And as we talked about the last couple of weeks, what Paul claimed and what James claimed and what they were willing to go to their deaths for, that he really was the son of God because they said they saw him. We saw him with our eyes. We, we touched him with our hands. We, we heard him with our ears. If that's true, he, he rose from the dead. So the question is, is there evidence to show that he rose from the dead and that he is Lord? He is the son of God. So let's review, okay? What we've said the past couple of weeks, okay? We've been looking at some facts. We've been looking at historical evidence. And what we've been using is called the minimal facts approach. What we've been saying is the evidence we're looking at, the facts that we've been looking at is agreed by all scholars, almost all scholars who study the subject, even the critical ones or even the non-Christian scholars. And so let's review those four, and then we'll look at the fifth here in just a little bit. So week one, for the first week of the series, we said this. Fact number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. And so we talked about that the first week. Week two, last week, we talked about the next few. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. And they proved that, that they really did believe that by being willing to go to their death, saying, we, we saw him. Remember, we said they were in position to know whether it was true or false. This wasn't something they were told by other people. They didn't die as martyrs because of what someone else told them or even because of what they just believed. No, they died as martyrs saying, we've seen Jesus. Like we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. So they were dying as martyrs based on their own eyewitness testimony, not what someone else told them. So that was fact number two. Fact number three, Paul, the church persecutor, was suddenly changed. Paul, the one who was killing Christians and, and dragging Christians out of their home and, and seeing them stoned to death. Yeah, that guy said he saw Jesus, saw him risen from the dead, changed everything. He began preaching about Jesus. First, the Christians didn't know what to think about him. They thought, oh, who is this guy? I mean, he was, he was killing us. He was stoning us before, but now he's preaching the very faith he was trying to destroy at one time. So how do, how do we account for the change in Paul who was changed and, and who was willing to, to go to his death as a martyr being beheaded because he said he saw the risen Jesus. And then fact number four, we did this last week. James, the skeptic and brother of Jesus was suddenly changed. We said this, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? Well, it'd probably take him rising from the dead, right? I mean, you're not going to believe him otherwise. And we looked in James in James chapter one, James chapter two, where James says he, he calls himself a, a servant of his brother, Jesus. He calls Jesus his brother. Remember he said, you're, you're, you're my glorious Lord. I said, how, how ridiculous would it be for any of us to call our brothers glorious Lord? I mean, we would never do that, right? Unless they had been risen from the dead and that changed James's life. And so these four facts that we looked at in the previous couple of weeks are agreed upon by all scholars, nearly all scholars who study this subject, even the skeptical ones, even the non-Christian ones. And then we're gonna add a fifth statement tonight. And this is agreed upon by 
what Gary Habermas, Dr. Gary Habermas, a New Testament scholar, would say 75%, give or take, of scholars who study the subject, even the non-Christian ones, will say that this is true, will admit that this was true. So fact number five, this, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. So how do we know this or why do we believe the tomb was empty? Well, first of all, we've got the gospel accounts, all four gospel accounts. And I wanna remind you, when I refer to the Bible, the gospel accounts that were in the Bible, that throughout this series, we've been looking at evidence mostly outside of the Bible, okay? We've looked at some, we've looked at some scripture with the Bible claims, but we've been looking at a lot of evidence outside the scripture. We'll do that again tonight, okay? But we do have the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Now, here's what I wanna remind you of when we talk about books of the Bible, okay? The Bible, we get used to thinking is one book. And so it's like, it's all one book and that's not true. It's really a collection of 66 different books. And so when we look at the four gospels, it's not like we're talking about the Bible, like it's one, like this isn't one source. When we talk about the gospels, it's four sources that are included in the canon of scripture. So when we talk about the four gospel accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and here's what they said. I'll set this up for you real quick. They said that Jesus had died, he had been crucified, and there was a man who came and had a tomb and had purchased it. He was a secret disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, came and asked for Jesus' body to bury it in this tomb. And so they take it, they wrap him in linen, they bury him in the tomb, and the Romans put a big stone across that tomb to seal it. And they put a guard there, a Roman guard, to guard the tomb because the Jewish authorities had said, had told the Romans, hey, his disciples have said, he's claimed that he's gonna die and then rise again three days later. So guard the tomb so that the disciples can't come and steal the body and then say that he rose from the dead. And so the Romans agreed, they put a guard there. They put the stone in front of the tomb. They put the guard there so that no one could come and steal the body. And then watch what happens next. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse two to seven. It says, suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. And so the women leave the tomb and they're going to tell the disciples and on the way Jesus appears to them. And the Roman guard goes to tell the Jewish authorities what happened. That there was this earthquake and that the tomb was empty. And the gospel accounts say that the Jewish authorities bribed the Roman guard, gave them money and said, hey, tell everyone that the disciples came and stole the body in the middle of the night. 
So we've got the four gospel accounts that say, all four of them refer to this, talk about this, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead, that his body wasn't there anymore. So we've got four gospel accounts. And we've got, in addition to that, the Roman and Jewish authorities pretty much admitting that there was no body, that the tomb was empty, by coming up with the story, by circulating the story, the rumor, that the disciples had stolen the body, right? I mean, by their very story, by the very excuse they came up with, they're acknowledging that the tomb was empty. Otherwise, they would have just presented the body. So number one, we've got the four gospel accounts. Number two, we've got this, we've got the Jerusalem factor. Why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why, why do we believe the tomb was empty? Well, we've got the Jerusalem factor. And here's what I mean by that. It would have been impossible to start a new movement based on the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried. Does that make sense? I mean, how could you start a new movement based upon the resurrection of Jesus in the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried? All they would have had to do is present the body and say, hey, listen, these guys are crazy. Look right here, here's Jesus, here's the body. Roll away the stone, here, here, here's his body. But they couldn't do that. And here's another interesting idea or thought. All of Jesus' enemies, all of the disciples' enemies in the Jewish and Roman authorities, all of the authors in this day and time, the, the, the famous Jewish and Roman authors, historians of this time, all of the critics of Christianity couldn't say anything. They had nothing to say except to continue to spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body, acknowledging that the tomb was empty. There's not one critic, there's not one source that said during this time, the disciples are crazy. They're, the body's right here. I mean, all they had to do was present the body. And so we've got silence from Jerusalem, the very place where this happened. We've got absolute silence from all of Jesus or the disciples, Christianity's critics and enemies. All they could do was circulate a rumor that said they stole the body acknowledging by their very excuse, by their very rumor, that the tomb was in fact empty. So we've got the Jerusalem factor. Third, we've got this. We've got enemy attestation. In other words, you don't typically say something about your enemy that acknowledges them or gives credence to their story or whatever. You don't normally do that if it's your enemy. And so when an enemy does that, when an enemy acknowledges what you're saying or tells a story in the case of the stolen body that gives credence to what you're saying, in other words, that the tomb was empty, it usually means there's something to it. So they begin to circulate this story that the disciples had stolen the body. You might be like, well, where did you get that? Well, one, we get that from the four gospel accounts. We just, we, you can read that in Matthew 28. But there's two outside of the Bible sources in the second century, a guy named by the name of Tertullian and another guy named by Justin Martyr, who were both authors in the second century, both said that in the second century, they were still Jewish and Roman authorities were still circulating this rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. 
So we've got Matthew 28. We've also got sources outside the Bible, Tertullian and Justin Martyr saying that they were still circulating this rumor that the disciples stole the body. In other words, the tomb was empty. And then fourth, finally, we've got the testimony of women. Remember in Matthew 28, the women were the first ones to see the tomb and that it was empty and the angel appeared to them, right? We've got the testimony of the women. Now here's why this is important. Because in this day, in this time, the testimony of a woman was viewed extremely low. Okay? Sure, you can imagine this day, in this time, in this context, in history, a woman's testimony was regarded as the same weight or the same value as a robber. Watch this. This is the Talmud, which we said, if you were here previous weeks, was a collection of Jewish writings by Jewish rabbis. And here's what they said. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they themselves are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. So we've got the Talmud, a collection of early Jewish rabbis and their sayings, their beliefs, their thoughts, saying that the testimony of a woman was equal to that of a robber. Okay, watch this next one. This is Josephus, again, the most famous Jewish historian wrote in the first and second century. He said this, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of, their, of the innobility of their soul. So in other words, we've got two early sources saying, don't believe a woman's testimony. It's like believing a robber, okay? Now I'm not saying this, don't, don't, this, this isn't me, all right? This is just the day, the time, the context of the way a woman's testimony was viewed. So this led Dr. Habermas, again, one of the most famous New Testament Christian scholars, he said this, watch. If the account of the empty tomb had been invented, it would most likely not have listed the women as the primary witnesses. Since in that day, a woman's testimony was not nearly as credible as a man's. Thus, the empty tomb appears to be historically credible in light of the principle of embarrassment. And let me just stop here. This principle, the principle of embarrassment, is that you wouldn't come up with something. You wouldn't fabricate a story that would make you look bad. So let me just make sure we, we understand this and this is clear. The disciples, the gospel accounts, when trying to spread the good news about Jesus being risen from the dead and that the tomb is empty, said that women were the first ones to view the empty tomb. What Dr. Habermas is saying is that in this day and this time, that would not have been a smart thing to do. If you were coming up with the story, in other words, if you were fabricating it, if you were creating a story out of nothing, they wouldn't have said the women were the first ones to see the empty tomb. They would have said some Jewish male was the first one to see the empty tomb. And so what Habermas is saying is the fact, the very fact that the gospel writers say that the women were the first ones to view the empty tomb shows that their story 
is credible. It actually points to the truth of their story because you wouldn't come up with something, you wouldn't fabricate something that would make yourself look bad or make it seem like the story wasn't true. So we've got the testimony of these women. And when you put all this together, watch this. This is what William Wan, Oxford University church historian, he said this, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. Professor from Oxford University, church historian, said that all the evidence points to the empty tomb. And if you reject that, you're doing that on some other grounds that's not based on scientific history because history The evidence of history points to the empty tomb. Now, some of you might be hearing, you're like, you know what? I bet it was the disciples. I bet they did steal the body. Because maybe, I'll I'll give you, the, the tomb was empty, okay? All of history is pointing to the empty tomb. Okay, fine, that's great. Uh, You know what? I bet the disciples, I bet they really did steal the body. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, that would be virtually impossible. And let me tell you five quick reasons why that's virtually impossible, okay? Number one, you had a Roman guard at the tomb. And so you'd have to explain how 12 disciples took out a Roman guard at the tomb and stole the body in the middle of the night. Those Roman soldiers' lives were on the line. And so you'd have to explain that. Secondly, you'd have to explain why the disciples who were scared out of their minds that they were next You remember Jesus has been crucified and and the disciples are nowhere to be found. In fact, the gospel writers say about themselves, some of them about themselves, that they were hiding in a locked house. They were hiding with the door locked because they were afraid that they were next. So how, you would have to explain, why did the disciples all of a sudden become bold preachers of the gospel, bold preachers of the resurrection? What, What happened there? How would you explain that? If they stole the body, Why would that change them into, from fearful, into bold, fearless evangelists? That doesn't make any sense. Third, you'd have to explain why the disciples were willing to die as martyrs for what they said they eyewitnessed. That was that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't die as martyrs just because of an empty tomb. They died as martyrs saying they saw and touched and heard Jesus. And not just the disciples. But Paul, the church persecutor, died as a martyr, saying he saw Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, died as a martyr, saying he saw Jesus. Which is reason four and five. You'd have to explain. How would the disciples steal in the body? How would that have convinced Paul? Paul said he saw Jesus himself. How would the disciples stealing the body have convinced James, the brother of Jesus? James said he saw Jesus risen from the dead. So you can see why this idea that the disciples stole the body is virtually impossible. Now, I know some of you here, like, listen, I don't care what evidence you have. I don't care what history shows. I don't care about the inside the Bible. I don't care about the outside the Bible. You can tell me whatever logic you want to tell me. I don't care. I don't believe in resurrections. You can't prove a resurrection happened scientifically. Well, there's a lot of things you can't prove scientifically. 
Can you prove that Julius Caesar was a Roman emperor scientifically? No, you can't prove that. So does that mean he wasn't a famous Roman emperor? No, I think we would all probably say, no, Julius Caesar, he existed and he was a Roman emperor. We can't prove it scientifically, but science doesn't prove everything. We have to use history. And history is a valid means of proving something, of giving evidence of something. Check this out. Within 150 years after Julius Caesar's death, there were five sources that talked about Julius Caesar, and one of them was himself. So let's just say he had four sources that were talking about all of his famous battles that he fought, all of the, conqu- the military conquests that he, that he was famous for, that he was known for. So he has four sources within 150 years of his death that we have that talk about Julius Caesar. Yet we all would say there is no doubt Julius Caesar existed and he had incredible military conquests as a Roman emperor. Watch this. Within 150 years of Jesus' death, we have 42 sources that talk about Jesus. Nine of which are non-Christian. Like they don't believe that the resurrection happened. Nine. 20 are Christian and outside of the Bible. So let's just take the non-Christian sources. We have twice as many non-Christian sources talking about Jesus as we do all of the sources that talk about Julius Caesar. Yet none of us would debate whether or not Julius Caesar existed and whether he was a famous Roman emperor with incredible military conquests. None of us would say that. None of us would debate that. We can't prove it scientifically, but we can with history. History. History is definitely a means by which we can know things to be true. Science cannot prove a supernatural means for the resurrection. It could prove natural ones, but it couldn't prove a supernatural reason, whereas history could. And so history is definitely a means by which we can know things to be true or not true. Science isn't the only way. So let me wrap this up, this whole series. We've talked about four facts that nearly all scholars agree on. We talked about one tonight in the empty tube that New Testament scholar Gary Habermas would say about 75% of scholars agree on. That's the empty tomb. And so when we take all of this together, it points to two things that we have to consider. Number one is this. This evidence provides compelling evidence for Jesus' resurrection. When you look at all of the evidence together, it points in the direction of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the way the evidence points. If you were just going to examine the evidence, the evidence points in this direction. You could say, I I still don't believe it, but you can't deny that this evidence is historical fact and it points in this direction. 
You may have a reason that you think is a good reason to not believe that it actually happened, but you can't say that's not where the evidence points. And then secondly, when you take all of the evidence, it stands as data that must be accounted by any opposing theory. Let's say you've got a theory or you've heard of a theory. We talked about some in this series, like Jesus, the swoon theory, like Jesus wasn't really dead. We talked about how that was virtually impossible. And there's another theory that the most, the, the two most popular ones are the swoon theory and then uh, the uh, disciples stealing the body. And we've talked about how both of those are, are virtually impossible because you have to account for all of the data that we've talked about. So what do you do? Well, we're left with three options that we've been saying. And it's that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. In the second century, there was a a Roman philosopher by the name of Celsus. And here was his decision. Here's what he thought about Jesus. Having been brought up as an illegitimate child and having served for hire in Egypt, and then coming to the knowledge of certain miraculous powers. And what he was talking about there is basically Celsus thought that Jesus was a magician who deceived people. That he practiced sorcery. And that him and the disciples were deceiving people through magic, through sorcery. He said, return from thence to his own country and by means of those powers proclaimed himself to be a God. So Celsus looked at all of the evidence. He, he heard everything. He, he heard the rumors. He knew that the disciples couldn't have stolen the body. That that wasn't going to work. He wondered at different points whether Jesus had really died. Now we've got evidence and we've got a lot of uh, people in in medicine today, doctors today saying that was virtually impossible when they study crucifixion. We talked about that week one. We talked about how if Jesus hadn't really died, that that wouldn't have convinced the disciples to die as martyrs saying they saw him risen from the dead. That wouldn't have convinced Paul. That wouldn't have convinced James. You see that no matter what theory we come up with, that we have to use all of the data. We have to go through and say, well, that wouldn't have done that. That wouldn't have done that. But Celsus thought there's, there's something going on. There's, there's a power I'm not sure of, but he equated it to sorcery, to magic. Jesus' disciples were just deceiving people. You know, and I think the reason someone would jump to that kind of conclusion or maybe just continue to deny that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead isn't because there isn't evidence. Isn't because history doesn't point there. It's because they don't want to believe it. Because if Jesus isn't a liar, if he's not a lunatic, then he's Lord. And a lot of people don't want to bow, don't want to humble themselves to a Lord. Their unbelief is because of their own pride. It's not because of evidence. It's not because we don't have sources and logic that point this direction. It's because of their own pride. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of their life. They want to do things their way instead of his way. And so they'll come up with any reason. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've continued to try to deny that Jesus is who he said he is because you don't want to give your life over to him. Because if he's Lord, then that means he's Lord of you. 
He's Lord of your life. And what you do really does matter. Watch this. Peter said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus from the dead, and we're all witnesses of this. He's in Jerusalem. You say, many, many of you saw him. We're, we're all witnesses of this. Me, the, the disciples, we all saw him risen from the dead. And so as a result, watch what Peter goes to next. This is a couple verses later, verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter said he's risen from the dead, meaning he's Lord. He's a son of God. He is who he said he was. He's the Lord. He said, you crucified him. So their response is, would be a natural response. Watch what their response is. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Our sin put Jesus on the cross, but he rose from the dead. We killed the son of God. What should we do? Peter, what do we do? We, we didn't think he was Lord. We didn't think he was the son of God. We didn't believe, but he rose from the dead and he is Lord. So what do we do now? Peter tells him what to do. He says this in the next verse, verse 38, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. In other words, Peter's saying, you've got to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus's payment of your fine on the cross. Bible says every one of us have sinned and our sin has a fine. Just like when you break God's law, you pay God's fine. When you break man's law, you pay man's fine. And there's a fine to be paid for our sin. And the Bible says that's eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But our sin put Jesus on the cross. Because God loved us so much, he loved you so much, he wanted a relationship with you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the fine for your sin. And so Jesus took our fine for sin. He paid your fine, you owed it. Your sin, my sin, put him on the cross. So what do we do? My sin put him there. He came to die for me, so what's my response? What do I do? Peter said, I need to turn from my sin. Turn from the way I've been living. I've been doing things my way. I gotta turn from that and I turn to God and I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I give my life to Jesus. And the Bible says when you do that, the fine for your sin, it's done. It's paid for, it's finished. Your sin, past, present, and future, it's done. It's forgiven. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. So some of you, you've been rejecting Jesus. You haven't wanted to do any, you haven't wanted anything to do with him. Maybe it's been because of pride. Maybe it's because you haven't wanted to humble yourself to Jesus being the Lord of your life. Well, can I tell you this? The Bible's clear. Whether you acknowledge that today or one day when you stand before God, you will acknowledge it. You just have a choice of when to do it. 
you could do it now and the fine for your sin will be paid for. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Or you can reject Jesus and one day you'll do it anyways. The Bible says in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee, every tongue. It's your choice. You can do that today. You can humble yourself and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I'm giving my life to you. Or you can continue to reject Jesus and you will do it one day when you stand before God. The problem then is it'll be too late and you'll spend eternity separated from God. So my challenge for you tonight is this, if you've never given your life to Jesus, humble yourself, turn from your sin and give your life to Christ tonight. And if that's you, I wanna challenge you, take that card that was in your chair when you came in, fill it out, check the box that says, I'm committing my life to Christ. Then after the service is over, you take it to the VIP center, it's in the back right there. My left, your right as you walk out. We've got a team there that wants to pray with you and celebrate that decision with you. So I wanna challenge you to commit your life to Christ tonight. Would you stand? Our team's gonna come and lead us and worship and we're gonna sing and celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is Lord. But as we do that, I wanna remind you that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said this, oh death, where is your sting? He said it's swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on to say, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who conquered sin and conquered death. You know, I was thinking about this week and knowing we were coming into the night and I began to think, you know what? Not only has death been swallowed up in victory, but the same thing is true for our sin, your past. You could say the same thing. Oh, sin, my past, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in victory. And so thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, who conquered my sin. There's no more sting of sin anymore. The same is true when it comes to fear. Fear, where is your sting? It's swallowed up in victory. Insecurity, where is your sting? You've been swallowed up in victory too. Apathy, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in victory. Shame, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in victory too. All of it, it's all been swallowed up in victory. Jesus conquered all of it through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he swallowed it up in his victory. And so you have victory over sin. You have victory over death and hell and shame and fear and insecurity and depression. They've all been swallowed up in victory. And so thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has conquered